We're going to talk today about humility and pride and how it interacts in the community of faith. Um, uh, in in 4.16, James uses this word, um, um, kind of we think of pride as being a corrosive personality trait, but the word um, that he uses here could be boastful arrogance, it could be uh, vanity, um, an old word vainglory, um, or a distorted sense of one's value and importance in the world. Uh, pride can be related to envy or to covetousness or even greed. It's the idea here that your desires are more important than those of others. Rhonda and I have been studying um, a, dis a personality disorder. Um, uh, it, when, I, when I speak it, you will say, um, okay, I know somebody kind of like that, but there's literally a personality disorder called Narcissism. Uh, it's a okay. What, what, it's called narcissistic personality disorder. I think it, it probably even has an acrostic. Knowing you, everything in the medical field seems to. It's kind of what we're dealing with here. Maybe something a little short of that. But don't we all occasionally get kind of in this pattern where now nah, we kind of think the world revolves around us. The opposite of that that James is going to teach us about is humility. And we'll talk about that at the end of our time together today. So let's, let's read a little bit. Now, by the way, let me say just a couple things about James himself. Uh, if you look at the first chapter, first verse, James is going to give you the only identification that he will of himself. If I were him... I would have gone further. So he doesn't, there are about five or six Jameses in the Bible. And he doesn't tell us which one of those he is. But tradition tells us. Um, um, early Christian writers tell us which James this was. It was the James that is in leadership in, um, in um, Acts 15. Becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And, and as such has a lot of authority over uh, all things kind of ecclesiastical or, or in the church in those days. He's probably writing to Jewish believers, we believe. But this is the James. Now think of this. He doesn't say it in 1-1. One, one. Somebody just out loud read 1-1 one, one real quickly to it. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would want to add, Dan, and by the way, Jesus half-brother. He doesn't say that. It's interesting. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus. Now, he didn't get there quickly. Did he? If you know the story, he didn't get there quickly. John tells us his brothers didn't believe in it, that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in it. Um, later on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to include post-resurrection, Jesus' brothers, along with his mother Mary in the group of followers and believers and disciples. But it doesn't even mention James there. My favorite place, and in fact, go with me. Uh, take, a, take a little trip back to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and I'm going to start with verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried 
He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, now that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. That's our author here. Then to all the apostles. Now, and, and, and uh, Paul goes on to say, and lastly, to me. So the, the idea here is, and, and here's another one of those things that I would like to see the videotape of when I get there. I want to see Jesus appearing to his doubtful brother, James. After the resurrection. Wouldn't you like to have a, 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 a synopsis or, a, or a, a manuscript of that conversation? Hi brother, how you doing? What are you doing here? Yeah. And he becomes a believer. How wonderful. By the way, that there is some indication. Think about this, okay? There's some indication that James may have been the only, or maybe some of the other brothers, but may have been the only person Jesus, by the way, this is not in the notes, so don't send me ugly email on this, okay? James may have been the only person Jesus appeared to after the resurrection that wasn't already a believer. Think about that for a second. Uh, okay, I knew somebody, there's the ugly email already starting, okay? But, but think about it this way, okay? A physical visitation to those who did not believe. It's pretty rare, but James is one of those that he picked up and said, it's going to be really important that my brother get this, okay? That's who we're talking about here. Now, Steve Blair, would you go to James 4, and read the first six verses for us. hand out some verses that we're going to read that will kind of help us supplement a little bit. Titus 3.9. Who will go to that one? Thank you, Cindy. Um, Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. Who will get that one? Sally, thank you. 1 John 3.15. Not on the outline. Who will get 1 John 3.15. Dan, would you go look for that one? 1 John 3.15. We'll get there. It'll be a few minutes. We'll get there. John 10.35. Thank you, Julie. And First uh, Peter five five. Anybody get that one? Thanks, Darren. Okay, now, now we'll. I, I think that'll get us kind of down the road a little bit here. Now, by the way, when you're reading, I mean, boy, talking about picking up right in the middle of a, a guy's thought it, as James four begins, it's like, okay, James, don't hold back. You know, come on, uh, man. 
Tough talk, right? Um, uh, but necessary talk here. Some really tough language here. And he's going to use two words in verse 1 that we'll drill down on just a little bit. The idea of the, of the first word here, quarrel, is the idea of confrontations. Uh, the kind that you don't like. The kind that you walk away from and think, what just hit me? Um, so that's that first word. And then um, the second word here, so quarrels and conflicts, what two words are used in your Bible? Fights and quarrels. Okay, so the second word then is uh, one definition, a nasty exchange between rival people. Okay, now Paul goes after this a little bit in his teaching in Titus. Uh, who's got Titus 3.9? Thank you, Cindy. Okay, so Paul's got the same thing that he's encouraging Titus in. Uh, and James is dealing with factionism in a church or in the church. Um, and he's just saying, um, and by the way, it likely is that these are Jewish believers, but no longer in Jerusalem. They're probably somewhere else. Um, um, uh, thanks to uh, the persecution that arose as martyrdom begins in the book of Acts. So they go everywhere, but they start churches where they go. And James hears about some of this factionism, and he begins to write, kind of to deal with it here. Paul deals with it, and his writing is too, uh, as well. So it's this kind of factionism or, or rivalries that are uncomfortable, um, unhealthy is the word I meant to say. And, um, and so James is going to say, and here's what goes in your blank finally, that the problem is not between Jeff Russell and me. The problem's internal. It's what's going on in Jeff Russell's nasty heart, but what's going on in my nasty heart, too. Okay? Does that, that work? That's why you and I don't get along. Okay. Don't be. You were just handy. It's what's going on in me. It's internal. That's the issue, okay? Now, uh, verse 2 and 3 are really, really interesting. And, and I always want to hasten to verse 3 because I, I kind of like what it teaches. But, but, um, but yet I, I can't, I've got to camp in verse 2 for a minute because he says in verse 2, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So, it, it, again, this fighting and quarreling is talked about here. But he uses the word murder here. Um, now, we've got to look at a couple of places to catch. It, are people really killing each other in church? I hope not. Okay? But there's something going on here. Who went to Matthew 5? Verse 21, thank you, Sally. Verse 21 22. Yeah. 
what Jesus is going after here in the greatest sermon that was ever preached, he's going after those who attack others in an ad hominem way, if you know what that term is. They go after, well, you see this all the time, uh, reported on in the news. They'll cut to cameras with somebody, and they're, they don't talk about the issues at all. They just talk about each other. I'm not going to go after the issue. I'm just going to talk about, well, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. <laughs> We're not going to talk about the issues. We're just going to get ugly. That's kind of the thing here. And Jesus says, in this wonderful, he, for verse after verse after verse, he's, he's dealing with, you know, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, don't be ugly to your brother in your language. Don't be, uh, uh, don't be murderous in speech. Okay, now 1 John uh, 3, verse 15 is going to deal with this as well. Now, one of the things I read said that what may be the problem here, what may be the basis of the argument, is they're, off, they're arguing over, that this never happens in churches today, certainly not in our church, right? But they're arguing, they may be arguing over the use of church funds. Wow. How many things have I gotten in the middle of in 42 years of ministry that had at its basis, well, why is the church spending money on that? Okay, I better not go much further with that. But you get the point. And they get mad at each other over it. To the point of James says, Jesus says, Paul says, you're committing murder. Well, not with your hands, but with your words. Now, look at verse 4. There's something I want you to talk about for just a minute. And, and I want you to, uh, to help me understand it. So, uh, uh, by the way, the implication seems to be that selfish prayers have little effectiveness. That's the idea there. I, I forgot to fill that one in for you. And it says here in verse 4 that we've got to choose between friendship with the world and friendship with God. So I'm going to read it one more time, verse 4. Uh, four. You adulteresses, by the way, there's a lot of precedent of that in book Hosea and other places, the idea that if you're, you're uh, following the world, you become kind of adulterous. That's kind of the idea. Um, you adulteresses, you, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now, here's what I want you to talk about. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, make himself an enemy of God. Would you just spend a couple of minutes at your table talking about what that could mean? Because I think this is critical for us to get. Would you spend a couple of minutes, I'll shut up, and talk about what does it mean that being a friend with the world means hostility with God? Um, what, how do I live then within that? Okay, look at 4-4 four, four toward the end of it. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Take a minute and do that. I'm eavesdropping on purpose. I hear some really good things being talked about. What's the issue? Do we, is James advocating for us to all move out of our neighborhoods and establish a commune? 
Some people kind of address it that way. So what are, what are your ideas? What, what came out of your table talk? How do I live as part of the world but not becoming part of it? Talk to me. Okay, so one of it is not adopting the, the ideals or the philosophies of the world, okay? Keep going. So don't adopt the world's value system. By the way, I'll make a recommendation to you. You might want to do something that I chose to do a couple of years ago. I just got tired of watching award shows. Uh, you know, because the, the value system, their value system, my system, value system doesn't sink at all. So, yeah, Ricky, what? Quote it. There you go. Okay, there you go. Now, here's the issue, though. Here's what I hope you drilled down to a little bit. So does that mean that I need to be completely disinterested and disengaged with the world around me? I phrased that as a rhetorical question, didn't I? See, the issue I think is that Christians are going to find it difficult to win the world for Christ if I withdraw from it completely. But I can't let it affect me. Um, community participation, having non-Christian friends, neighbors, that's not spiritual adultery. That's not what's being talked about here. By the way, it was so bad in Hosea's day, you know what? Hosea got the great privilege of doing. I wasn't going to use that word, Dan. And harlot. And harlot. Yeah. God says, go marry a prostitute, and she's going to be unfaithful to you. Interesting. As an illustration to the world, to literally to uh, the people of faith at the time. Okay, so I think you and I have kind of got to deal with this. Now, in verse 5, he says, it kind of raises this question of the, does the scripture speak without reason? Another rhetorical question. The question is whether scripture ever speaks without reason. Um, um, John 10, 35 says the scripture cannot be broken. He, and, and what's invoked here in verse 5 is the concept of God being jealous. Now, I want to be really careful of that. And that's, you know, certainly an idea that's an Old Testament idea as well as a New Testament idea. But the idea here is, is that God has a different kind of jealousy than we have. As you look at verse 5, what is God jealous for about you? You catch it? It's kind of beautiful. Let's read verse 5 again. It's literally, capital S, Spirit. See that? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. He wants His Spirit to be your spirit. He wants his spirit 
capital S, the part of him that's alive in the world today, he wants his spirit, his essence, to be at home in your heart. In order for that to happen, I'm going to have to wedge some other things out that are not like him. Okay? Now look at verse 6. My question is, in what area or areas right now am I in need of more of this? Now, what is the this? Look at what he says here. But he gives a greater grace. He's quoting, we think, Proverbs 3.34. Did somebody go over to 1 Peter 5.5? 5, 5? Did I hand that one to somebody? Read that, will you, dare? Isn't it interesting? Peter quotes it. James quotes it. Uh, Proverbs 3.34 must have been a pretty big deal to them. And both of them are dealing with this issue of pride versus humility. And so one of the questions I may want to ask myself, and I'm trying to ask myself this, is where where am I most in need of more grace in my life? God's resistance to prideful people is a recurrent theme in Jewish teaching. Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. Pride here is kind of this sense of warped self-love. Loving me too much. Now, um, um, great scholars in my life will remind me that, that I can't love God until I love me. God is going to teach me how to love me, though, appropriately and keep me in an appropriate boundary. So, uh, the issue might be kind of this warped sense of self-love. Janie, again, Jeff Stewart saying, does the world revolve around me? Okay, now let's go to the next section, okay? Because I want us to catch just the end of this, and so give me um, six or seven minutes here, and we'll get this done. Um, Cindy, can I get you to go to where James 4, read 7 down through 10? Okay, now take just that section, beginning with verse 7, look in your Bible. This is, uh, but we'll go to lunch with our daughter today, and she'll order some decadent dessert of which she'll eat two bites. Okay, usually chocolate, infused with chocolate, covered with chocolate, surrounded by chocolate. But, um, and she'll often say, you know, I'll say, wait a minute, I just paid six bucks for that, you got to eat it. She'll say, no, it's too rich. Verse 7 and through 10 that, that Cindy just read is incredibly rich. And what I want you to do is just take a minute and let's pick up the verbs here. Just the verbs. So all you English teachers can help us here. All right? Okay? Look at all the incredible verbs in here. Submit. Resist. Well, that's on his part. Let's talk about my part. Draw near. Okay? Cleanse your hearts, your hands. Purify your hearts. 
Be miserable and mourn and weep. Oh, it's kind of interesting. We'll talk about what that means. Humble yourselves. Okay, several. See how rich that is? Just four verses here. Now, let's talk about a couple of them. The key to winning this war with the devil is in resisting and submitting to the right authority. A lot of truth here. A lot of verbs here. The word submit is a military term. Okay, if you served in the military, just raise your hand. I, I love it because I know both of y'all did. Both of you in the Air Force? Okay, boy, that was a dangerous question because if it had been the Marine Corps, I was in trouble right then. Okay, Joe's in the Marine Corps. Those who are a rank or a stripe ahead of you, was it possible at all to resist that authority? Just didn't do it, did you, Joe and Korea? Unless you want to peel potatoes for about a month. The idea is a military term of submitting to the proper authority, to authority that's been given. So who am I submitting to? God, Jesus. Who am I resisting? An inferior authority. Now, what you've got to catch here, and, and you might put uh, in, in uh, I actually include it there, 1 John 4, 4. One of the things I've got to remember is that the devil is an authority. He's involved in the spirit world in a way that sometimes I need to better understand. But what John tells me is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I need to submit to a greater authority because I can resist the devil. And the Bible tells me here that what happens when I resist him? He'll run away. He'll run away. Every day, we have this relentless pursuit of Satan to undo us. But if I can take orders from the right authority and resist him, he will flee. But here's the truth from verse 8. Conversely, you ready for this? God will never flee. I put a passage in there from back uh, from over in the book of Isaiah, where he just where the 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 writer is just saying, um, God pursues you; He will never flee from you. You resist the devil, He'll flee. What happens to God? Even if you don't pursue Him, He's going to pursue you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Uh, can you remember a time in your life? I've heard enough of your stories. No, maybe this is true. Can you remember a time in your life when you weren't pursuing God at all? In fact, you might have been running away from him. And yet all that time you knew he was pursuing you. Because that's how he is. Resist the devil, he'll flee. Resist God, he's going to pursue you that much harder. <laughs> that wonderful? Submit and resist. God will never flee. My approach, my, my response then should be to approach him and to become clean. I love the, I love the teaching here um, in verse uh, 8 that, that gives us this thought that if I draw near to God, he will draw near to me. And it begins to talk about clean hands and cleansing my heart. 
uh, I was in a, uh, I was visiting a tiny baby in, um, who was premature in a, in a neonatal intensive care unit one time. And um, I washed the skin completely off my hands. And Nurse Ratchet was standing near me, okay? As I, as I gowned up, washed my hands like crazy, started to walk in to see the parents and this little baby who had asked me, by the way, to come see them. Nurse Ratchet said, do it again. Do it again. And I probably did it four times before I passed her inspection. Now, now here was, here's what's on the wall in some consultation rooms. Okay, ready? Here's how to wash your hands. Wet your hands with water. Apply enough soap to cover your hands. Rub your hands palm to palm. Rub your hands on top of each other, interlacing your fingers. Rub palm to palm with fingers interlaced. Interlock your fingers. Now, this is like 12 steps. Rub with the back of your fingers in opposing palms. Twist your thumbs with opposing fingers. Rub your palms in a circle with opposing fingers. Rinse your hands. Dry your hands with a single-use towel. Use your towel to turn off the faucet. Did your mother teach you to wash your hands like that? Mine did not. My mom just said, it's time for dinner. Go wash your hands. That was about it. Okay. James says, as you're drawing near to God, come to him with clean hands. Wash your hands. That may mean, may have something to do with the acts of my hands. And, he says, scrub your heart while you're at it. You know, my, my motives. I come to him with clean hands, I come to him with a clean heart. Now, the last verse, and we'll take off here in just a minute, last couple of verses, verse 9 and 10. Let me read it again. Be miserable and mourn and, mourn and weep. Okay, that's enough, right? That's good. If I'm going to be a Christian, you'd be miserable. No, the idea is you've got to, keep, you've got to keep reading. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The idea is we can no longer laugh when God says repent. God will laugh with you when the time comes. He will rejoice with you when the time comes. But when God says, you got some things to change, when he's working at humbling you, that's not the time to laugh. He'll draw close to me if I'll draw close to him. Repentance means self-humbling. And the result He will lift you up. Did you catch that? He'll restore you. He'll give you confidence for life. In the two minutes that's left, let me give you a couple of things that I want you to think about. Because I think one of the things that's being taught here is, is a, just a forgotten issue in our world, and that is, how do I humble myself? That's what he says to do. Let me give you three ideas. It's not on your not on your outline, um, but let me give you, by the way, uh, one way to develop humility is not to have a humility contest, okay? The church next week is going to have a, we're going to have a uh, most humble guy and girl contest, 
It doesn't work that way, does it? That's why I said stay away from the award shows, all right? Okay? But let me give you a couple things. Okay, first, meditate on how great he is. Uh, read Psalm 8, for instance. David is looking into the night sky and he says, when I see how big you are, I feel so small. Uh, when I look into the night sky, he says, and see the work of your hands, what am I? That's a good process. Reading the Psalms, studying who God is, the vastness of him, his, his uh, transcendence kind of puts me in my place. Second, remember the undeserved love and grace that God has lavished upon you. Occasionally, I have crystal clarity about this, and I recognize you have been so good to me. I have not deserved any of this. Third, this is one that you can specifically do. Do something for someone for which you want absolutely no recognition and will not accept recognition. Do something for someone where you want nothing in return. You don't need to be noticed. You don't need to be recognized. You don't need someone to send you a thank you card. You don't need to be acknowledged at all. Acknowledge God. Meditate on who he is. Remember what he's done for you. And then do something without any expectation of anything in return. Develop humility is kind of the idea. 